This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. As always, I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making our truth journey a reality. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. When you subscribe, you receive your login immediately. And don't forget, Sanitas Radio begins on Tuesday, October the 1st. Check out the upcoming guests. You can subscribe at SanitasRadio.com. Don't miss out as we embark on a new journey to declassify the secrets to our health and longevity, focusing on mind, body, and spirit, which is so necessary during these chaotic times. I hope you can join me. And for MMS... Our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material and phytovitamins feel the difference. Visit the Veritas store and also the sponsors page. To get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. There have been many truth seekers who paid the ultimate price for seeking and telling their truth and were important enough for me to embark on this journey we call Veritas. One was William Cooper. 
The other one was Philip Schneider. For a very long time, I wanted to produce a show on the mysterious life and death of Phil Schneider. And tonight, we are doing so with a special guest, Darcy Weir, right now on Veritas. Darcy Weir has a university degree in sociology and a diploma in film production. Darcy is an independent researcher who found Phil Schneider's story to be very interesting and compelling. Through his investigation, he was able to contact Cynthia Schneider, Phil's ex-wife. Once he realized there was so much behind this man's story, he decided to collaborate with other researchers who could lend more supporting arguments about Phil's story. Therefore, he reached out to Richard Souter and Richard Dolan, veterans of this radio program as well, to discuss many of the different realities Phil would discuss while he was on tour. Furthermore, with the help of a friend, Neil Gold, who is head of Exopolitics Hong Kong, he was able to expand this investigation. Darcy rounded up this story with a unique worldview from that side of things, which relates to Phil's goals and how the world is today. And without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce Darcy Weir to Veritas. Hello, Darcy, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, Mel. I'm quite well, thank you. My pleasure to have you on. A few weeks ago, you got in touch with me, Darcy. Apparently, you listened to one of our interviews and you thought that we could do a show about Phil Schneider. And coincidentally, since the beginning of this very radio program, I've always wanted to dedicate a few shows to some people that matter to this program. One of them is obviously Phil Schneider. Another one is William Cooper. But you produce a documentary with a lot of compelling information. We've, we, All of us are used to have, having seen some of uh, Phil Schneider's videos on the web, but they're separate. You were able to compile a lot of this information into one video that created more of an impact than I had before. So I'm glad to have you on so we can discuss Phil's mysterious life and death. But why don't we start, first of all, by you telling us how you became involved in your own independent investigation? Yeah, well, um, I guess where it all started was, um, you know, over... Pretty much seven years ago, I was pretty interested in um, the occult, just interested in uh, I was tired of um, the mainstream media and everything that just gets drilled into your head and sort of dumbs you down, so to speak. Um, and I was following a lot of different things online and um, I had always looked for a story that was very unique um, that possibly I could create, you know, more of a um, explanation for. And when I had heard, I had actually been dating a, a girl at the time uh, who um, had told me, you know, we were both into this sort of stuff. She had told me, have you ever seen this guy um, on YouTube? Uh, his name's Phil Schneider. He talks about how he got into um, a altercation uh, when he was working at a, a secret underground uh, base work site. Um, and the altercation was not with, you know, other 
people. It was with apparently some form of ET race and uh, the guy was maimed and uh, it's really interesting stuff. You should check out this video on YouTube. So I'm like, hell yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. And I start watching and I thought, wow, I mean, what are the implications if this could have actually happened? Um, and that's just where I just started going down the rabbit hole. And, um, I started reaching out to people and did some fact finding at the time, uh, early on in my research, I spoke to Ken Varden, who is a guy that's, uh, he's now quite long retired, but he was, um, heavily involved with putting together the, some of the early, um, presentations that Phil was involved in, uh, at like the American Bigfoot Society and stuff like that back in the early nineties. Um, and Ken Barden had told me, you know, about having dinners with Phil and getting more and more, uh, deeper information on the, you know, uh, background of Phil or, or what had happened to him. Um, and then Ken Varden passed on, he's from, if, if you look up the American Patriot Network, APN or something like that, he, he used to have his own website and all this stuff. And it, it's a, you know, a, a very patriotic and, um, they try to push the envelope with, um, whistleblowing and stuff like that. But it's a little bit outdated now. Anyways, he pushed me on to, uh, Cynthia. So Cynthia is Phil's ex-wife. Um, and they had a child together, um, Marie, uh, who's quite a wonderful person. And, um, when I spoke to Cynthia, she just basically gave me the, the sort of, uh, history on Phil, his life and, um, a bit about Oscar Schneider. And, um, she provided me with all kinds of documents that Phil had, traveled with on his lecture tours and um, she provided me with all this, this uh, data that I, you know, I put some of it in my documentary. There's so much of it. Um, and as you know, I've sent quite a bit of it to you. Um, so I couldn't include it all into a short documentary, which, you know, it happens pretty quickly. If you watch it, it just kind of goes by pretty quick. It's only about an hour and a half, but um And you have close to you have close to two million views by now. Yeah, yeah, it's got it's getting up there. Um but uh yeah, basically it was uh it was a really fun project to work on and um uh, I'm still very interested in all the stuff. Um and I think Phil is one of those people, I mean you spoke about w William Cooper. Um I, I think two similarities between the two of them um, right off the bat is their mysterious deaths. Um, these were controversial figures. They were talking about things that were not in the mainstream public. Um, they challenged the paradigm. Uh, they tried to wake people up and get information out there early um, when, you know, the world was just, you know, the nineties was not, uh, it wasn't the greatest time for, 
uh, main, well, mainstream kind of uh, media that ruled at that time was pretty stupid. I mean, it was pretty dumbed down. And then you had guys like this that were, they were building, you know, you look at the Tea Party, um, the political party that really it, it was born out of a grassroots movement. Um, and you look at the way that these people, they saw stuff happening and the American public, uh, sort of political forum and they were sick and tired of it. And they formed the Tea Party as a group. Um, and they, they became really powerful and now they have seats in Congress and everything. But, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is Phil Schneider and William Cooper were, both forming these sort of grassroots movements, these large groups of people that were listening to them all over the United States. Um, and these were people that were not necessarily looking for the occult. They were sometimes just average Joes that were, you know, tired of what they were being told by the government or by the mainstream media. And they wanted to find something fresh and find something that may be connected better with what they may believe to be true, what was really going on around the world. Um, and I think that's the real threat. Um, and back then it was a real threat to um, the powers that be because you had um, a pretty stable system of disinformation uh you know, infiltrating the, the minds of the people and uh, keeping the paradigm nice and stable. Uh, but then you had people like Phil Schneider and, and William Cooper going on tour around the U.S. and just saying, this is bullshit. Um, you're all living a lie. Wake up. And uh, I think that at first for Phil, it wasn't that big, but you know, he did over 40 lectures, um, before he passed and, um, he was really, it was just the momentum was building. I mean, sometimes he did lectures with, uh, over a hundred people in the room. Sometimes he did lectures with only maybe 20, maybe 15 people in the room, but it was consistent. It was building up. And, um, I believe you know, he was getting more and more popular and he was actually getting fresh information near the, just before his demise, I think he was getting um, stuff that he didn't originally set out to talk about from other insiders. Um, and I think, you know, those that didn't want him to talk had found this out. Um, that he was getting some fresh information and that's when they put a quick stop to, to, to his being, you know, to, to who he was and, and what better way to do that than to just snuff somebody out. I think that, uh, Bill and, and Phil may no longer be with us, but their work definitely continues and continues to magnify and be validated all the time. But, 
I think also there's a correlation here between what Phil and Bill, and this show is about Phil, but we have to mention Bill too, because what he was doing also was very, very eye-opening to most people. But they were both out there, let's say that they were in the underground in a way. We didn't have the prevalence of the internet. Only if you had internet by the, you know, 96, 97. Internet pretty much came along in, what, 94. William Cooper had his radio show, and a lot of times he would have to send tapes to people so they could listen and spread out. So no YouTube. Same thing with Bill, with uh, Phil. People would uh, use their camcorders, make copies, and pass around. But it was very limited in the exposure. Now, when the late 90s came along, I know this that... Uh, President Clinton even said to the FBI that William Cooper was the most dangerous man on radio. And I wouldn't doubt that Phil Schneider was up there with him too. So with the advent of the internet, it became more of a threat. And if you notice, they would, uh, Phil died in 96, uh, Cooper died in, in 2001. But Phil, going back to Phil, he wasn't selling a book, Darcy. He wasn't selling any material. He was simply sharing his truth, correct? Uh, absolutely. Um, he was, I mean, a big portion of what he would do, um, he would lecture, but he would also bring in evidence on his tour. I mean, he would take um, pieces of metal, which he claimed to be off of military craft. Um, he would pass that around the audience. He would bring in uh, pictures um, which he had taken, I believe, out of his father's um, file cabinets in his his uh, office. Um, and his father, um, you know, was definitely, I think, an ex-Nazi who was brought over under Project Paperclip. Um, and, um, and, and obviously a lot of these Nazis that were brought over under Project Paperclip to the United States were... Uh, to another country um, were used as assets. They were used as um, scientific, special, uh, specialized um, experts in certain fields that, um, you know, the powers that be wanted to uh, extract more use out of. Otherwise, they would have just been treated like any other Nazi grunt in the war and, you know, uh, probably prosecuted to the fullest extent. Uh, but Phil's father was brought over and uh, his family was protected. And um, his father was kind of like royalty uh, from from what it looked like in uh, the Black Project sort of um, realm because he worked on really important projects like uh, all of the Abel and Baker bomb tests um, off the, the coast of Bikini Atoll. And um, he worked on the USS Nautilus, which was the first nuclear submarine, um, apparently worked on, uh, you know, projects involving the USS Eldridge, which uh, could in fact be the, the ship that was used for the Philadelphia experiment. But um, yeah, um, Phil was... I think when his father passed away, he went through his father's files and, and stuff that was in his office and just found this treasure trove of, um, you know, 
information that was hidden to the public. And Phil was a smart cookie. He knew that he had happened upon some very powerful things that people should know about. It shouldn't be just locked away in some filing cabinet in somebody's basement office. <laughs> and um, that's when he when he was going on tour, he was showing that stuff. Um, and uh, it's um, it's pretty explosive information, even by today's standards, because, uh, you know, people just. I guess part of the the purpose of doing my documentary is that people don't realize that um, the military industrial complex has that they took um, things that were, you know, uh, already in existence, but they sped up the progress progress of them. Um, so we had underground. Uh, you know, manufacturing technology for, it seems like thousands of years. If you, if you watch the starting of my documentary, um, I include some, some reference information, obviously, uh, showing ancient aliens and, and stuff like that, because I want people to see that it's all connected. Um, it's part of our history as people on earth, humans on earth that, um, we will tunnel underground. Uh, to seek shelter and what have you. Um, but, but it's linked to the military industrial complex, which really ramped up around World War II. They realized the um, importance and significance of speeding up different types of uh, research to uh, be an instrument of war or uh, defense. And, um, when you're going to do research on exotic technologies or um, you're going to uh, experiment on things that can't get out to the public, to the mainstream, you know, to the cattle and sheep that you herd, um, you know, you don't want to spook the sheep because they won't flock together like you want them to. So you will quite literally... Um, push things underground so they're out of sight and out of sound. Um, and uh, I guess in my documentary, I just wanted to, to sort of bring that to light, that it's stuff that's always been around. Uh, the military got a hold of it. They um, and, and they still use it today. I mean, you've got the NSA, you've got... Um, their headquarters that goes miles underground, apparently. Um, you've got areas which are very ominous, like uh, Area 51, which you can't even step foot on, and uh, all kinds of areas. Even in, in Australia, you've got places like Pine Gap, um, which is a sort of mountain facility, um, NORAD headquarters. You know, it... it it's not just in the United States, all countries um, that have interest in keeping things out of set, sight and out of sound um, or want some protection elements will make a facility underground that's he heavily fortified. Um, and Phil wanted to he wanted to out that um, he wanted to out a lot of things and. Uh, and I guess, um, you know, you could say even the secret space program. Why is that we had um, 
this amazing generation in the 60s when JFK was in power and um, we had a race to the stars with the Russians. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden in the 1970s, uh, we haven't been back to the moon, you know, as a manned mission. That seems pretty strange. Um, why is that uh, we don't have this as why aren't we a civilization that is already populating planets and working together to um, form a strong relationship with each other rather than against each other. Um, I think part of Phil's presentations, he was trying to prove that, um, you know, we are a race that's on the way to the stars or has already made its way to the stars, but, um, but it's underground. It's, it's, it's basically being carried out, um, planned, clandestinely by a group that's uh, involved with the military and it's not for the general public to know. Um, it's, it's basically, you know, it, it was public knowledge in the sixties and everybody was excited about it, but now they don't want you to be excited about it. They want you to be excited about watching the, uh, uh, you know, pop culture reality TV shows and get um, worked up about, some chick that murders her child and, uh, you know, carry on about stuff that is just mind numbingly stupid, um, and shouldn't have any important relevance to our everyday lives because, um, we're more than that. I think mankind has so much more potential and the powers that be probably know that too. But, um, if we just keep the status quo, um, then, we're good sheep, you know, um, we don't, we won't rock their boat and, uh, they can keep everything going the way it goes. Not that, but, uh, not that killing a, a child by the mother is a stupid thing, but the fact that so many thousands of people die on a daily basis worldwide, and perhaps some of them because of us in the, in the wars that we have, but just focusing on one single trial for weeks about one single person, that is trivial in the scheme of things. But, you know, many people are looking at the picture that I included on the promotion of, of this interview that we're conducting today, and they see a, a group of men discussing something. That's the, the ready room of the USS Eldridge, Eldridge as uh, Darcy's mentioning. The USS Eldridge was allegedly used for the Philadelphia experiment. And I pointed an arrow to Captain Oscar Schneider, MD, Dr. Uh, Schneider as well. But also, I included the name Val Thor just in front of him. He's the only person that's wearing something totally different from the group of, of gentlemen there. When and, and how did you find out that this was allegedly Val Thor? And for those people who are listening, you may have heard of uh, Dr. Frank, the late Dr. Frank Stranger's uh, Stranger in the Pentagon. That is the Val Thor. We're used to seeing pictures of the alleged Val Thor that looks totally different than this one. Can you explain? Yeah, well, um, apparently this is uh, the picture that Phil went on tour with. Um, and he used it as evidence um, when he was presenting. He would hand it around. Uh, Cynthia still has this um, at her house in, in the U.S., somewhere in Oregon. And um, 
Yeah, so I have a copy of it. She shared that with me. And uh, if you watch his lecture, it, it's pretty much his lectures are so pixelated. Um, you know, the quality is very low because it's an old uh, VHS that's been a copy of a VHS and was shot on probably eight millimeter uh, videotape or something like that. Uh, so it's not the highest quality, but you can see the picture being presented in in that in his presentations when he's showing it to the crowd and he's pointing out this character in the front row of apparently the uh, USS Eldridge, uh, some ship or military vessel, and there's quite a few military men sitting uh, behind the character listening to a speaker at the front of the uh, room. And, uh, yeah, the, the character in the front, uh, he seems a bit out of place because he's not wearing the same uh, wardrobe as uh, or the same uniform as uh, the characters around him. And um, he's kind of large, like his hand looks pretty large and his his head looks pretty um, big. And he just his seems neck. like his neck. How tall was this man? I wonder. Yeah, he looks like he's over six feet tall at least. Like he's a very huge, uh, proportionate human being, uh, if that. And um, right behind him, if you look at uh, some of the photos I included in the documentary, um, Oscar Schneider is sitting right behind him. Um, and apparently on the back of that photo is um, some notes by Oscar Schneider um, the significance of the photo because um, Phil's father would keep this file cabinet full of stuff from all of the black projects or all of the military and government work that he did over the years. And this photo came out of that cabinet and um, noted on the back was this is Valiant Thor um, sitting in the USS uh, Eldridge ready room. And uh, so uh, it's a very interesting photo. Um, I I hope that it's true. I hope that um, that it's it is part of the project that uh, apparently was involved in. And, um, you know, by the I, way, I, I, I found a, a a more clear picture, and I was able to zoom. And just folks, if you can look at the look at the the man's ear, it looks very different than a, a regular ear. Yeah. He looks a bit off. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Um, he doesn't, if you, at first glance, he just looks like another guy, but I think, um, people have been talking about that for a while in the, uh, you know, um, in the occult that there's possibly, um, extraterrestrial uh, civilizations that look exactly like us at first glance, but then, you know, take a closer look or communicate with them and you'll see um, things are just not the same. And uh, yeah, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty compelling photo. I thought it was very interesting. Actually, I got it from Lee Lustig. He was the guy who, he did some of the sound work on the documentary. He did the, the, the musical score and stuff. Um, but Lee's in, he's located in uh, Los Angeles. He works in the film and television industry. Uh, he's currently actually writing a uh, script. He's, he's doing a screenplay about the Phil Schneider story. 
Um, and he's trying to find, yeah, he's trying to find Hollywood, uh, you know, production companies that would possibly get behind the project. But, uh, these days, anything that gets into, um, you know, the, the mainstream, uh, movie cinemas is usually, you know, something to do with, uh, uh, you know, uh, independence day type scenarios. So I don't know if it would quite fit with exposing black projects and stuff, but I really do wish him well. And, um, I'm working with him on another documentary right now, uh, in a similar vein to the, the one that we originally released together. Well, that's the, that's the thing that, um, you know, if somebody has a script to go to, to the producers, they can see government help. I mean, Independence Day or or any movie that uh, or Red Dawn that requires their participation, as long as the the U.S. military is portrayed as strong, powerful, and the winner, they get involved. But if it's the opposite, and you know, let's say somebody takes uh, Bill Cooper's book, uh, Behold of a Pale Horse. They would not give a penny. I think the same thing, and I wish your friend good luck, but they don't portray the United States government as a very benevolent entity, if you will. So it's going to be something where perhaps independent producers may have to fund it. That would be a great one, because if Hollywood takes it, I think they're going to change the story, make it science fiction, and completely discredit the real Phil Snyder. But the the I have a question. Um I wonder if Oscar Schneider named his son Philip because of his involvement in the Philadelphia experiment. This is just speculation. What do you think? Could very well be. Could very well be. And um, Phil apparently told Cynthia that um, he was involved in some form or another in the Philadelphia experiment, uh, that when he was a baby, he was used um, as a test subject for, uh, some kind of technology that possibly opens, you know, um, portals to time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's purely speculation. Um, it, it's interesting as hell, but, uh, she said that he's, he thought that he was put through one of these and, uh, his, year of birth was off by a year because he was um, sent back. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I've got his birth certificate and stuff like that. And um, he was born on a military base in Bethesda. Um, so that, and, you know, his father and mother are, are noted on the, as uh, birth parents on the birth certificate, which is in the documentary. Um, and, uh, definitely brings credibility that Phil's father was involved in the military um, while Phil was, was being brought in to the world. Um, but on another note uh, with, with uh, films, uh, you know, that uh, Frankie Strange's uh, valiant Thor stranger at the Pentagon uh, is being created as a film. Yes. Uh, did you know? Yes, yes yeah. I do. And uh, I'm very interested in that project. I hope it, it comes to fruition. It's a really good story. Um, it has to be. I think it's something that should be told because uh, um, it, it could be true. And it could present the idea that, um, you know, what if a government that's in charge of 
uh, herding the sheep and keeping uh, order and control is presented by, uh, you know, an outsider that looks like us, talks like us, but is much more advanced and offers a solution to create harmony and, uh, and, uh, uh, help civilization thrive. And, um, and that's through the aid of technology and, um, a, a new form of economy. Uh, what if the government w- was, you know, presented by somebody like that and, um, and they turned down the opportunity because they liked the control and they liked the economy and the society that they had already built and they wanted things to keep going the way it was because they were scared they would lose control. And it's a very valid um, scenario. It, it, I guarantee it's happened in one form or another. Um, and they probably did uh, ally with possibly somebody who didn't have the best intentions for the world. Um, so, yeah, that's just my take on it. And I think that film could be an amazing uh, sort of presentation on the whole theory. I remember um, when I started this uh, this radio show, I was referred to the telephone number of Dr. Frank Stranges, so I, I called, and his wife started to cry, and uh, I asked her what was going on, and she said that uh, Frank had just passed away a few days before that. But for those who are listening to us thinking, who is Val Thor? Who's Valiant Thor? Essentially, if I, if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this was supposedly somebody who came from Venus and was introduced by our president uh, in exchange for, I don't know what exactly, but this person allegedly had been uh, working at the Pentagon for decades. And this man is allegedly hundreds of years old and never seems to to change at all. So if this person that you see on that picture that I have on, on the website is Valiant Thor, then just imagine how old he can be. There's also other pictures out there. And, and as you know, the government and intelligence, they probably put other stories out there. So they there are other pictures out there of the alleged uh, Val Thor, his brother, and allegedly his sister. But these two look more like... Uh, Hollywood actors, they just don't seem to be anything different than any Hollywood actor. Um, But another thing that caught my eye, uh, Darcy, in the documents that you sent me, and these are probably some of the copies that um, Phil retrieved from his late father's uh, cabinet. Take one of them, for example, Department of the Navy. It's a memo that he hand wrote to, uh, I don't know exactly, but Phil always mentioned that he had a Rhyolite or rhyolite, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, uh, security clearance. And this is exactly, yeah. right? So this is exactly what his father had because he mentioned that rhyolite section of the Navy. Anyway, on one of the memos, and you have a few, he's writing to a Charles. He's conducting, as a, as a medical doctor, he conducted an autopsy on crew member number nine. And he goes into detail and says that he found a foreign, he found foreign material, perhaps implants found in number nine's cerebellum and the nose. And he kind of uh, depicts what it looks like. And also he enlarged in detail. Uh, he wrote some uh, script or writing of a known 
origin. He wanted to see if the person he wrote the memo to could identify the uh, insignia or whatever he found on the gold-tipped fiber-shaped material that he found. Isn't that interesting too? I think it is incredibly interesting and um, it's all connected. As I said before, I mean, you look at, um, I believe it's Roger Lear's work under the scalpel. Dr. Roger Lear, alien scalpel. You're right. Yeah. Um, Roger Lear is a uh, doctor for years now who's been working on abductee cases, cases, um, one of which would be uh, Stan Romanek, for example, um, somebody who comes into his medical practice and they remove foreign objects from their body um, post apparent abductions. And, um, you know, uh, I, I wonder what his um, documentation looks like, what his post autopsy notes are on um, bodies that he's had to uh, extract things from. And um, apparently in the early days that he was working for NATO, um, he was pretty much the go-to guy for these types of operations. Um, just just the same as uh, Dr. Lear is that, you know, there's certain people that seek him out because they hear that he does this type of thing and they're worried about their well-being. They don't know what the hell is going on in their lives. And um, they go to him to get these types of surgeries done. Um, well, Oscar was hailed whenever the government had something come up. Uh, one of their uh, military men needed an operation to get something removed, apparently. And um, in this case, this letter discusses, uh, yeah, some kind of fiber with a gold tip that has an unknown, uh, either an unknown language on it in microscopic form, because he magnified it quite intensively in order to uh, extract that information and create the um, illustration on his paper. Uh, so this is a super small, this is basically a uh, transistor, as Cynthia says in the documentary. Um, and uh, it was basically something that somebody else put in uh, a body um, to possibly track them or, or see, you know, what was going on. Um, and, uh, I think it's very relevant to the whole, um, abduction phenomenon that's going on around the world. So to think that the government is, uh, working with, um, certain doctors to extract this information and research it themselves does not surprise me. And the, the fact that um, they would have been doing it as early as the 1950s doesn't surprise me uh, at all. Um, but of course, to the mainstream, it seems incredibly loony and uh, and just challenges the norm, challenges, uh, you know, um, celebrity reality TV and all the shit that people invest their time in these days. Well, it's... Uh bread and circus. That's exactly my opinion. We think that uh, during Roman times, the population was trying to revolt and the Caesar gave them bread and circus. So we have bread and circus right now. We have sports, we have reality TV, and uh, we have uh, fast food to uh, keep us quote unquote healthy. But you know, some of the other documents I'm seeing here, Darcy, one of them is written to Lieutenant General, to General Nathan Twining 
Another one to Admiral Roscoe Hillencutter. These are names that we discuss all the time, and they're all dated early 1950s. In this one, let me just read a, uh, something quick. He says, as of 0600, 21 April 1953, J. Edgar Hoover now requests that all associated personnel be given prior and restrictive psychological testing conducted by the Navy Psychological Unit of Quantico, Virginia. He's referring to the personnel inside the Elrich. What do you think was happening here? Well, it sounds like um, if, if you kind of read the succession of letters and stuff, it seems like you can piece together the story that They've carried out the uh, test. They've carried out the the project to the extent that they've possibly um, had success with uh, some form or another on the USS Eldridge in regards to the technology that it was supposed to do, which is um, make it invisible. But uh, I think in the lore and the story of the USS Eldridge and the Philadelphia experiment, people will... Um, notes that it may have teleported instead and showed up in a totally different location somewhere else in the world. Um, so if that type of event took place and there was crew members, live crew members on the USS Eldridge at the time, um, and the U.S. Army has found uh, this vessel, well, they found the crew members as well, and they probably want to uh, not only debrief the crew members and find out where the hell they went and what happened, but um, for those that uh, are, 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 you know, coming back from this journey, some of them uh, you may want to investigate their um, the well-being of their human form, and, and that requires some form of autopsy or medical examination. So uh, with one of the letters, I think what supposedly happened was uh, it was a cadaver. At the point, the the officer had passed away and they had found all these foreign objects in his body. And then um, in uh, the other letter, they were it was a memo to um, get psych evaluations on the soldiers immediately. Um, to find out if they were, you know, capable to still stay in service. Um, and furthermore, if they were, um, able to describe what had happened to them and what better, uh, forum to discuss that than by a, a military psychologist. Because if you have a military psychologist, um, doing this debriefing, well, if he says something crazy, you can just call him crazy and throw him in a loony bin, um, even though what he's saying actually may have happened. Uh, and uh, yeah, and and then um, if he says something that may be dangerous and uh, important, well, you can extract that and you can give it on to the higher ups of the military. And I'm finding I'm just uh, I keep reading all this stuff while you're talking. And here's another memo that he wrote to EU. Condon, and for those who don't know, Edward Condon was uh, a distinguished American nuclear physicist, a pioneer in quantum mechanics, and a participant in the development of radar and nuclear wep uh, weapons during World War II as part of the Manhattan Project. He wrote uh, a memo to him, quoting Hoover, and mentioning that this was of 1A 
Prime Directive. I don't know what that really means, but it seems important. And also, he's mentioning and congratulating Condon for his his participation in the project at uh, his visit in Colorado at Boulder. And also, he mentions uh, concern of Nikola Tesla's spatial analyzer. And this is strange because we hear of this almost as if this technology was sequestered from Tesla. And We've heard this before, that Nikola Tesla spatial analyzer was related to the Manhattan Project. Have you looked into this at all? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, Jen uh, Condon would, you know, in a nutshell, you could describe him as the um, anti-Stan Friedman. He was a Stan Friedman that went wrong and uh, and instead of having the best intentions for the the general public, he wanted people to be in the dark and stupid about everything involving even UFOs or, uh, you know, uh, the cosmic truth, you know, um, space. Um, so he went on tour, uh, in the U S, um, as a sort of, uh, uh, debunker, um, to all these sort of exotic theories about what's going on on the planet and out there in the universe. Um, but he was, he was employed by the military. So Stan Friedman, when I say anti Stan Friedman, he's, he was also a scientist involved with, uh, nuclear and, uh, physics, uh, to some degree. And he's been championing the idea that we have been visited, uh, on the planet by, uh, you know, uh, different parties or races in the cosmos. And, uh, and he's a he's a good man that champions those sort of ideas. Whereas uh, this man is a, a notorious, uh, I'd say, infamous in our field um, debunker. He's quite a scoundrel, uh, and he was part of the military, so he was he was well informed about possibly what was going on behind closed doors um, and spatial analyzer. So. What does that have to do with anything? Um, Nikola Tesla apparently had a great deal with um, helping carry out that whole project. He was apparently the brains behind the physics and the technology that was to come to pass in order for the whole thing to even work um, for the Philadelphia experiment. And so Apparently, the spatial analyzer was a contraption or a device that um, helped track, um, you know, space time and uh, and and put objects into, uh, you know, hide them by hiding them from space time because they are able to. I, I'm not. I'm not really able to full fully explain what it would do. But um, other people who have written about uh, the Philadelphia experiment have described this as a possible um, device that is used by Nikola Tesla or invented by Nikola Tesla for the project. So, um, yeah, it's, an, it's interesting that it's even quoted in there along with uh, Condon, who's, um, you know, uh, somebody who would always be out there in the public forum uh, shutting down whistleblowing or any uh, ideas that would challenge the paradigm or the uh, the, the standard uh, 
mass conception of reality. And also, I keep reading these memos, and I don't mean to deviate from Phil's story, but I think it's important to to note Phil's father's involvement with U.S. Navy intelligence. Here's another one, and I'm looking on the web here. This one is actually not from the 50s. This is prior to the to World War II ending. This memo is dated December the 12th, 1944, and is referring to another U.S. Uh, vessel, the, the Fa- Furaseth or Farnseth, I'm not sure exactly. And he says, in consideration of the latest facts, in considering the fact of the USS Farnseth, all ship's personnel, I don't know what happened to the ship, but all ship's personnel and material must be quarantined absolute until further notice. No exceptions. On-site naval inspection is order forthwith. And it says this, uh, this is written to uh, Admiral Roscoe Hillencutter, U.S. Navy. Consider these areas and all events of nature above secret. Project Blue Sky. What do you know about Project Blue Sky? I don't know enough, but um, the way I read that letter is it's it's all um, linked to the same sort of memos that are going out about uh, the USS Eldridge and the Ferenseth may be just another code name to try and break up any paper trail that may be followed by people like you and I. So um, if we pick up one letter that says Eldridge or says, you know, um, Ferenseth, then um, we'll think, oh, these are two different ships. But uh, really, to those that are inside, they're part of the military industrial complex. They're in the know, so to speak. They would be able to discern what this letter is actually um, pertaining to. And uh, if, in fact, um, they're saying we have to quarantine all objects, all property and material that come from the Ferenseth, as well as those occupants that came back from their journey, you can kind of discern, well, um, that's kind of right there saying that uh, mission accomplished, but we got to uh, get a lid on things and make sure things don't uh, get out to the public. So guys, take this very seriously and keep the lid shut. Definitely. And let's take a moment to discuss uh, the alleged. And, and folks, please consider that I keep using the word alleged because, you know, people who listen to us might say, do you have 100% proof? And I don't. But it's so compelling that I wanted to bring Darcy to continue and explain more. But 1979, the Dulce facility, can you please explain and recount again what Phil used to 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 retell the story of how he was called. He was a geologist, and he was involved in, in going down to the Dulce base to put a stop to something. Can you elaborate? Yeah. So um, when on tour, Phil would always, one of his main uh, topics he would discuss was the fact that the U.S. government um, is heavily involved in building these underground bases to protect their research and their uh, scientific interests and keep them underground. Um, so in Dulce, New Mexico, or Dulce, um, he was involved in, he was a part of the structural engineering team. Um, I, 
I think he was more involved in the geology, the rock formations that are part of that landmass there. And um, he would analyze the rock formations and, and help people that were involved in deflagurating, which is the process of melting out or exploding uh, rock formations. Um, and furthermore, uh, if they couldn't do that, then using some kind of boring technology to uh, chew through the uh, formations. And if you have a geologist part of your team, they're able to um, basically wrap the head around the group uh, or, or sort of uh, explain to the group what the next sort of formation they're going through so that their task can be handled pretty well. So apparently in this process, he was, uh, you know, um, they hit a, uh, a wall or they hit a, a roadblock. They hit an obstacle that was not allowing them to proceed with their tunneling. And um, that required an individual to actually go down into the uh, the the excavated hole that they had created so far and um, and find out what was creating this obstacle or, or hindering their work from progressing. Um, and in doing so, he um, first of all, in my documentary, I just want to clear the air. Um, I had an illustration artist. He created some uh, graphics to sort of present the idea in graphical form uh, at the starting of my documentary. Um, and um, he said, Phil said he was in a space suit like environment. I think a lot of people have seen the, the graphical images and said, oh, if he's in a space suit, how can he smell anything? How can he like really um, uh, be able to explain things the way he has uh, and, and the way the events unfolded? Well, he said space like and the illustration artist put an actual spacesuit on him in the uh, scenario. So it's not exactly accurate, but um, spacesuit like means that it wasn't exactly a spacesuit, but it was something that kept him protected. OK, so he gets lowered down into this hole quite far down. And um, as he gets further down, he starts to um, smell an aroma that's quite foul. Um, and, uh, you know, people that even wear industrial, uh, waste masks and, um, you know, other types of chemical, uh, blockers, uh, will even say that they can smell a fragrance coming through the thickest and most, uh, important air filters that you can wear on your face. Sometimes you just can't get rid of the smell. But anyways, um, he gets lowered in this basket into this area and apparently, um, he encounters a extraterrestrial entity, which he probably didn't identify as that at the time. He just saw it as something, um, humanoid and, uh, not very, uh, you know, um, welcoming. I think Cynthia, when she explained the story to me, something he would say off the record was that it's, um, part of what the smell was down there was rotten decay. Um, as you go deep in the earth, you're going to smell like different things like methanes and stuff coming up naturally from the earth, from fossils and fossil fuels that go deeper down. Um, but 
in this area where the entities were, apparently uh, it was very foul because apparently there was human bodies down there. Um, and the human bodies were uh, cadavers. They were they were dead. And Phil had seen this uh, and was startled. And, uh, you know, seeing this sort of thing uh, doesn't make you think, well, I'm going to reach out my hand to uh, welcome this committee. I'm probably going to defend myself. So that's what apparently he did. Um, he had a, a gun and he shot shot these uh, beings but um, uh, after that he was there was an exchange of fire um, so he received some mutilation from this uh, events and uh, carried it throughout his life after that um, he was missing quite a few fingers um, he had his body uh, just basically split open from his chest down to his abdomen in this event. Describe, and, uh, describe, describe the weapon that was allegedly used by the, the gray. Well, I, I'm, I can't say what the weapon was, but, um, you know, allegedly uh, something that fired an electrical force or, or just an energy, um, not like, shooting a piece of metal like we do, which is ex basically an extension of the sword or uh, an arrow, right? We just put gunpowder behind it. So it's a pretty primitive weapon. Um, but whatever was shot back at him was an energy form and uh, just kind of split him open. But uh, By the way, even, even during the autopsy... Cauterized. Cauterized, exactly. Even during the autopsy, and we'll talk about this later, the autopsy of Bill's of Phil's body, the the person who conducted the autopsy mentioned that it was that uh, the area of the chest was burnt. So, you know, that's probably from that incident. Quite possibly. I mean, um, it was burnt. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that were uh, discussed in his autopsy, which. Um, you know, you have all the documentation, so um, you can see for yourself um, in the autopsy surrounding his death, um, the circumstances just don't add up as a suicide. But it also alludes to the fact that um, his body went through quite some trauma in his existence when he was living. Uh, Absolutely. But let's not go there yet. I want to go in chronological order. In 1979, he survived this incident. And how many... Green Berets were sent there. I, I remember this by Bill mentioning it. A, dozens of, of Green Berets were sent there and they pretty much all died, right? Yeah, I mean, people have been talking about it, I mean, for years, saying that something like 70 people passed in the event. Um, you know, uh, military and researchers alike. Um, so there was quite the altercation. I think what happened was maybe Phil and his team triggered an event that led to an all out battle of some, some form or another. And, uh, and Hey, I mean, like, is it possible? I think it's very possible. Did it go down exactly the way that Phil told us? Maybe not. Um, maybe that's his version of things. And maybe the nineties was, it was an era where uh, people liked to hear heroic stories. 
Um, they liked to be uh, caught up in the idea of, um, you know, a man defending himself and being, you know, uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting the predator and stuff like that. Right. I don't know if it went down that way. I mean, Anthony Sanchez, who wrote uh, uh, UFO Highway, um, he parts of the um, information that come out in his book, uh, they line up with what Cynthia was telling me. I mean, I asked Cynthia, has Phil ever been shot? Like was when he said he was shot on tour, shot at, at least. Um, did you ever remember him being wounded or anything? She said, yeah, well, um, one night Phil came back to the house and, uh, you know, I, I heard a knock at the door and it's late. By at the way, night. I don't mean to stop you, but we have to take our one and only intermission and we'll take this on the way back. Uh, this is such a fascinating story and there were plenty of attempts toward Phil's life. And when he died, he had multiple health conditions. But one thing I do remember during his, uh, his uh, lectures, he said, I will never commit suicide. I'm a very religious person. If I'm ever found that I committed suicide, I did not. And he said that again and again. But we'll discuss more of this when we come back. How can people watch your your documentary? I have it uh, linked on our website so they can watch it. But is there anything else you would like to do to promote your work and your upcoming documentary? Yeah, well, um, it's absolutely free. Um, people can just hop on YouTube and search The Underground, and, and you'll see the title of The Underground, uh, which is a story about Phil Schneider and, and possibly a hidden reality that uh, is going on even today. Um, the new documentary that I'm working on is called Beyond the Spectrum, uh, out here in Australia. Um, as people know, uh, All of this sort of occult information is not just uh, from the United States. It's from all walks of life on Earth. It's from Australia. It's from Africa. It's from China. You know, you've got airports being shut down in China in 2011 from uh, apparent UFOs blocking the runway, etc. But beyond the spectrum, the documentary is going to be about... Um, Uh, a, a lot of stuff on that, but it's also going to be on human perception, uh, the visual spectrum, and how uh, people perceive information and how the human eye can only see certain things that are going on around us. Uh, so I guess that's all I can say for now, and uh, I look forward to publishing that in the near future and, and getting that out to the public. Absolutely, and one of the persons that... Uh We discussed on this show our friend Richard, Dr. Richard Souter, and I'm not sure if I'm if I should mention this publicly, but he's not in the United States right currently. But he suffered uh, an extensive beating in the hands of I don't know who. He's still recovering. Hopefully, once he feels comfortable to come back and and tell us more of the story, he'll return to Veritas to to let us know. But I've received a lot of emails from people asking me if I know how Dr. Richard Souter is, and he's 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 recovering from this incident. Yeah, when I when I um, started interviewing him for this documentary, uh, he was in South America at the time, and um, he had told me about all the things that he was doing down there. Um, so I guess we can talk about that when you come back. But uh, yeah, it's startling that he's been beaten, and uh, uh, yeah, my hope goes out to him. I hope he's 
he's recovering and he has quick godspeed on his recovery. Certainly. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Darcy Weir discussing the mysterious life and death of Philip Schneider. This is Mel Bambergas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
Dr. Richard Souter, and you are listening to Veritas. 